You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. An arrest has been made in the German doxing case. The U.S. begins a campaign to heighten businesses' awareness of cyber espionage. Observers see a coming cyber cold war with China on one side and a large number of other countries on the other. Facebook is following a widening investigation into the use of inauthentic accounts, ads, and sites in recent U.S. elections. And WikiLeaks' lawyers tell news media to stop defaming the organization and its founder. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Pittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 8th, 2019. The BKA, the German Federal Criminal Police, have made an arrest in the doxing case. They pulled in a 20-year-old man, a student in Hessen. The suspect has not been named publicly, presumably because of his relatively tender years and German privacy laws. He had no previous criminal record and was living with his parents. He told police that his motivation was anger and disaffection with politics generally. The Frankfurter Allgemeine says that one of the suspect's acquaintances, a 19-year-old from Heilbronn who works in IT, is being questioned as a witness but is not himself a suspect. The student who's been arrested says he worked alone and the authorities appear to think that's correct. A more extensive report will be out from the Justice Ministry later this week, but it's worth reviewing some of what's known about the case. First, a great deal of material was collected and leaked, for the most part through a now-suspended Twitter account belonging to someone who went by the nickname God, with the middle character a Koi Zero as opposed to an Honest O. Second, the material wasn't particularly discreditable or scabrous. It was anodyne, things like rental car agreements. Third, it affected all political parties except one far-right group, the ADF, or the Alternative for Germany. And fourth, speculation about attribution centered on two theories. It was generally believed that the long-running doxing was the work of either the Alternative for Germany or, naturally, the Russians. The ADF's apparent immunity to doxing struck people as fishy, and a bet on Russian mischief is usually a safe one. Unlike, say, our Baltimore Ravens, Moscow almost always covers the point spread. But in this case, no, it was an apparently solitary and alienated student. The lesson, again, is that attribution is a dicey business. The BKA says the student made a full confession, said he acted alone because he was annoyed by his victim's public statements and wished to expose them. The police also say there was no apparent political motive, except, of course, insofar as annoyance with public figures counts as a political motive. Concerns about Chinese cyber espionage persist and even spread, 
with some observers thinking that Beijing may be badly overplaying its hand, particularly with respect to its detention of Canadian citizens, in apparent and obvious retaliation for the arrest in Vancouver of Huawei's CFO. The U.S. government, with the NCSC in the lead, yesterday warned companies of all sizes about the threat of cyber espionage. NCSC is undertaking a public education and awareness campaign to recommend best practices for self-protection. Chinese espionage is the principal concern, but such best practices would be broadly applicable to a range of threats. NIST recently finalized their updated password recommendations, NIST 800-63B Password Guidance, and there are several notable changes in the recommendations from previous versions. Rob Reck is Chief Information Security Officer at Ping Identity. He joins us to review what's new. In June of 2017, NIST released new password guidance, uh, and this password guidance took the place of the old guidance that we're all familiar with, which is the you know, eight characters, upper and lower case with a number and a special character as a part of it, and really has a more holistic or programmatic way of looking at password requirements. Hmm. Um, so th- there's a lot of different details, including different levels of assurance that you need to look at. But I think it really boils down to a few key changes that I can summarize. Uh, number one, they they do have a minimum password length of eight characters, which is not a change. Um, although they say they do now enforce that you need to have a longer maximum. So that's one of the challenges you'll see in a lot of implementation of passwords is that they'll have a maximum password length, you know, sometimes as, as low as eight as well, um, or, you know, maybe 20 characters. And they're saying your maximum has to be at least 64 characters. And of course, it's better if you can have a higher maximum than that. Hmm. Um, they specifically say all printable characters should be allowed, including spaces. This, of course, enables people to do things like have uh, passphrases instead of having just a normal password. Um, And then a big change is they get rid of the complexity requirements. They're no longer saying you have to have a number, you have to have a a special character as a part of it. And they're also getting rid of the requirement around having a schedule-based password expiration. Mm. So we're all familiar with this expectation that your password expires every 90 days or so. So how do they do this, right? It sounds awfully dangerous. Well, the way they do it is they now are requiring that every password that you consider using gets compared against a, a database of known bad passwords. So you may have be familiar with Troy Hunt's Have I Been Pwned database. Yeah, sure. A good, a good example of one of those. Um, so every password as it's being set or used should be compared against that database to see is it known to be bad out in the wild. So that helps mitigate some of that risk. You know, As you start thinking about all those easy passwords someone could use if there's no complexity, well, all those passwords are already going to be as a, a known breach password, right? They also require that MFA is a requirement for all of, you know, any sensitive password at least. And they have removed SMS as an acceptable two-factor to use as your MFA. So between the known breached list of passwords and MFA, they believe they're getting you know, pretty good security. For the folks who fall under this, the folks who are actually out there uh, on the ground who have to use this, what are the practical implications? Yeah, you know, I'd say number one, it is a lot better usability for your users. They, you know, they don't have to go change and, and learn a brand new password every eight months, um, as long as they haven't been breached. Um, but it isn't super easy to implement. Uh, you know, we don't have yet like Active Directory uh, doesn't have a really easy way for you to do this on premise. They, you know, Microsoft has been working on it in uh, in their Azure AD and. Now, companies like Ping have, have been found ways to in, implement this with our solutions. But if you're just trying to do it on your normal on-premise system, it, it's not a plug-and-play setting to turn on you know, in your AD. Uh, so you have to think about things like, where do you put this? 
Uh, you know, if you can do it in the directory itself, that's good. But if what, but if you don't have a directory that supports it, you know, you need to do it in line, maybe through like a, a password changing website, or maybe if you have single sign on, you know, through the place where you're signing in, uh, you can implement that that password check. So you're seeing, is this a breached password? Is this a known good password? So while it's not too bad to check passwords, you know, while they're sitting in the in the directory itself, it might be easier for you to to check it as they're signing in. So you're getting that password in clear text, and you're not having to compare a hash. You actually get the the real password itself that you can hash on your own. Because one of the elements you, you have a tr trouble with is if you're salting your passwords, and you definitely should be salting your passwords, um, you can't necessarily tell from the hash what password it is you're looking at. Now, these are guidelines from NIST. So so what is the authority behind these? Is it up to individual agencies to say, yes, you know, we're going to adopt these, and so these are the rules here from now on? Yeah, so the expectation is, over time, this is going to become the de facto password standard for the industry. NIST is the one who created the original standard. And if you look at you know the vast majority of our corporate uh, security policies and standards out there have adopted NIST's guidance to do it. And as you know, as a vendor myself running security at a vendor, um, I have a lot of customers who are expecting me to, to stay up to date with what is the industry best practice for passwords. And we expect over the next you know, I don't know, two to five years to start seeing a lot more companies moving toward this. I think in the federal government that it's going to start to be an expectation um, as as enforcement happens, as the agencies start to to update their uh, their policies and standards. That's Rob Reck from Ping Identity. The Czech Republic has ordered an investigation of security risks it thinks Huawei and ZTE devices might pose, and is considering a ban. Australia's government has taken a line as stiff as its Five Eyes sisters, especially the American ones, on further incursions of Huawei into the country's infrastructure. The Australian Broadcasting Corporation reports that there's growing grassroots concern about the Huawei-built pre-5G cell boxes people see around Sydney. Japan has effectively banned government purchases of Chinese telecom equipment from this year going forward. The concerns, of course, involve security, and Huawei is currently holding talks with Japanese authorities to negotiate some relaxation of that ban. The company is said to be offering to buy more Japanese-made components in the hope that this will help allay security concerns. Most of the talk about the espionage concern surrounding Chinese equipment manufacturers has been about Huawei, with ZTE a respectable second. It's unlikely that these worries will be confined to just those two companies. A Bloomberg op-ed thinks more manufacturers are likely to receive hostile international scrutiny, with Lenovo mentioned as the company most likely to be next in the barrel. A cyber cold war, complete with spheres of influence, is widely predicted. Facebook's investigation into democratic inauthentic election influence operations widens, Operation Birmingham, said to have been funded by wealthy party donor and LinkedIn billionaire Reid Hoffman, appears to have worked to influence the Alabama 2016 special senatorial election in favor of the eventual narrow winner, Senator Doug Jones. There were also apparently unsuccessful operations against the 2018 campaigns of Senators Blackburn of Tennessee and Cruz of Texas. Facebook is looking into what may be systematic use of inauthentic news feeds, ads, and sites. Senator Jones has called for an investigation. Mr. Hoffman has said he's embarrassed and should have paid closer attention to what was going on. The tactics employed, as described by the Washington Post, 
show close attention to lessons learned from the Internet Research Agency, the notorious St. Petersburg Troll Farm. Finally, WikiLeaks circulated a confidential legal memo to several news outlets outlining 140 false and defamatory things they should stop saying about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. The communique was probably prompted by reporting in The Guardian, where stories about Mr. Assange's alleged meetings with then-candidate Donald Trump's campaign operatives are being strongly denied by WikiLeaks. The confidential legal memo, foreseeably leaked as soon as received, may be read full and unredacted at Ars Technica and elsewhere. The Times of London is among those papers sniffing at the irony of WikiLeaks pleading privacy and confidentiality, but in fairness to the House of Leaks, we must say that having read their memo, it really is protesting inaccuracy, not intrusiveness. Among the misapprehensions WikiLeaks's lawyers are particularly concerned to correct are the following, that Mr. Assange is a paid Russian agent, that WikiLeaks has members like Al-Qaeda as opposed to employees like the ones any legitimate media outlet would have, and that Mr. Assange not only hates the United States but also bleaches his hair and neglects his cat. So, nota bene, Mr. and Mrs. United States. Mr. Assange loves you, wears his own unredacted hair, and is good to his cat. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the Fraud Intelligence Manager at Terbium Labs. Emily, it's good to have you back. Um, you all recently posted some information about credit card fraud, uh, sort of centering around what you describe as the nine lives of a credit card. That's interesting to me. Uh, take us through what we're talking about here. Uh, you know, I've talked before with you and with the listeners about uh, fulls. These are, you know, it's F-U-L-L-Z. These are full identity kits or full identity packs. And those usually include something like payment card information. So a card number, expiration date, um, you know, CVV code, the security code on the back. Um, it might also include uh, helpful account information. So in addition to the card information and cardholder details, you might get mother's maiden name or answers mm. to security questions. And hmm. as I'm sure you can imagine, these are very appealing to fraudsters who like to exploit all that data. Right. It's sort of a premium package for sale. A fulls. A fulls. It's everything you need to get the job done. Okay. And so what's interesting is at the core of that, right, is that credit card information because it's the thing that you can cash out most easily. Mm. Well, getting back to the spooky dark web times, uh, we've recently seen some uh, some listings across markets for what are called dead fulls. Hmm. And these are not what you might expect at first glance, which is a fulls for a deceased person. Right. We're not going to get quite that macabre this early, <laughs> okay. uh, this early in the in the season, but... Instead, they are fulls where the vendor is actively saying, hey, this credit card doesn't work anymore, but if you still want these identities, have at it. Hmm. So it's like the day-old bread of, of fulls. <laughs> what, what, well, so what is the appeal? If the credit card doesn't work anymore, what's in there that they still find valuable? A lot of things, and I think that speaks to, you know, we, we think about when a payment card is compromised you know, there's a sense that if you turn that card off, then everything is taken care of. But depending on what other data is compromised, there's a lot more at play. And when we're talking about, you know, identity data, you can't really turn that off the way you turn off a payment card. So, yes, mm. it's unfortunate you can no longer exploit this particular payment card account. But guess what? You still have names and contact information and mother's maiden name and security question answers, which... You know, it's easy to remember where you went to high school, so I'm sure you use that on every site. Uh, and you can do a lot with that. And you can you can do a lot with that for a very long time. So if from a consumer's point of view, is this a, what's the situation here? I mean, if, if my credit card's been compromised or somehow I get a report that, uh, you know, my credit card's been up for sale on the dark web uh, and I get that card changed, I might not necessarily be out of the woods? That's right. And that gets to the idea of this nine lives of a credit card, right? Because one compromise, even if that compromise is circled or centered around rather centered around a credit card, hmm. uh, that may not be the end of it, right? Just because the card is dead doesn't mean the fraud's over. Uh, and this gets to the broader conversation that we're having in the industry at this point. And I'm, I'm glad we're getting there, which is what do we do? What do we as vendors, what do we as consumers do in an industry or in a world where everything is compromised or will be very soon. You know, how do you fight the battle against identity theft when your information is out there 10 times over? And I think this is a problem we're going to see more of. And, you know, I think this is an example where, you know, the first thing the fraudsters want to go after is the payment card because it's easy. You cash it out and you go away. Right. But they're willing to put some effort in and it's going to be very difficult for consumers to match that. There's a whole other... Uh, range of folks who are out there willing to play a longer game. Yeah. All right. Well, Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.